Senator Scott Wagner is the anti-politician politician, born in York and raised working on a farm. Scott became a serial entrepreneur at a very early age. Uh, after a winning historical race for state Senate as a write-in candidate in 2014, Scott now wants to be governor of Pennsylvania. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briat, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and I am at the, the Manchester Cafe in Manchester, Pennsylvania, just north of uh, York City, six miles north of uh, uh, York City. And um, I'm sitting with Scott Wagner, state senator from York, uh, also a candidate for governor. Uh, Scott, good to be with you uh, in your hometown here. Matt's good to be with you. Uh, there's a lot of activity here at the cafe this morning. Pretty busy place. Well, I know it's uh, just a little north of uh, your business, uh, one of your businesses, a uh, place that you frequent uh, regularly here. It's probably about a half a mile north of Penn Waste. So, you know, a lot of my uh, employees uh, come up here for, you know, lunch and breakfast and dinner and so it's a busy place. Well, I know we're going to have some omelets delivered here shortly as we're uh, enjoying a cup of coffee and uh, wanted to catch up with you. Uh, we want to get to know the person behind uh, the politician. Um, and, of course, it, uh, you probably bristle at being called a politician. I know that uh, uh, that was not uh, your aspirations, but uh, felt compelled to get into politics. So I want to hear about that. But before we uh, talk about politics, Scott, let's talk about uh, growing up in Pennsylvania. What was it like as a little Scott Wagner? Well, Matt, uh, you know, I, again, back to your comment about being a politician, I, I would prefer to be called an elected official. Elected official. Because the word politician makes me want to have to go home at night and really scrub hard when I take my shower. But, uh, no, I grew up in, in southern York County, um, and I grew up on a farm. And my parents moved, built a home on the farm. Uh, they had a 25-acre property. And my mother gave horseback riding lessons uh, for probably over 50 years. But I had two hardworking parents, hardworking father, uh, worked in the construction industry, and he was also a blacksmith. Um, he shooed horses, you know, mm -hmm. in evenings and weekends, and, you know, we took care of, you know, all the, you know, all the animals on the farm. But, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm. It was a great, uh, great uh, childhood. Brothers and sisters? Uh, I have a uh, sister and uh, have uh, two brothers. One is deceased. And... Um, but, you know, we, we, we worked on neighboring farms throughout the summer, baled hay, and there was lots to do. And, um, but it was, a, again, when you look back, I mean, I just come from a blue-collar family um, here in York County. And, you know, there are just, you know, you know tens of thousands of blue-collar families all around Pennsylvania. But it was, a, you know, it was, a, it was a, for me personally, it was a, a, you know, a great childhood when I look back. Now, when you're a child, you know, in that circumstance, you don't see it the way you do today. Uh -huh. But, um, you know, uh, I was not a, I really didn't enjoy school uh, that much. And uh, I would sit in the classroom every day and I would watch the clock on the wall and I'd watch that second hand go around and I couldn't wait to get out of school uh, <laughs> and go home and work on the farm. And then I worked at a relative's construction company next door and, um, you know, and I worked on neighboring farms. So for me, I, you know, I, I wanted to work. I love working and you know, probably at age, you know, 12 or 13, I was probably making $35, $40 a week. Okay. And then I was 16 years old. I, my father had purchased a Jeep on the farm. And uh, when I was 16, I could go out and drive on the road. And uh, I started a lawn mowing business. So I would go around to, um, you know, businesses in the area. And at that time, there weren't a lot of businesses. But my first, my first um uh, business customer was uh, a gentleman by the name of Art Gladfelder, and Art was in the insurance business. And you he bet. Had, he had just built he had just built his first small office building, and it was just he and his assistant at the time. And uh, so, you know, I took care of the the, uh, the the lawn at Gladfelder Insurance. That was my first customer, and then, of course, you know, you know, Art went on to build a very large business here in York County, and and um, you know, he's also very. So good you're to Art. 16. You you kind of start your first uh, entrepreneur entrepreneurial adventure I guess is that where you you kind of peg the bug of being an because you've been sort of a serial entrepreneur all your life well it's really I started I would say yeah back to 16 uh, you know starting that first business and then I went to William I graduated from high school went to Williamsport Community College and um, and after a year of at Williamsport Community College which is now Penn Tech um, mm -hmm. I, I decided to come back to York and I wanted to start a business so I went came back and worked for a relatives 
construction company, but at age 19, I purchased a piece of land. And I sold that piece of land um, two years later and made a profit. Now, that was not my intention when I purchased it. You know, I purchased it as an investment. And, you know, after two years, somebody approached me and asked me if I had an interest in selling. And the price was right. So sold and made a profit. And then I started buying apartment buildings in the city of York. And Said, I kind of like this idea. I huh? like this. You know, I like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I like when, when the numbers are positive and they're green. And I started, um, you know, I purchased two laundromats. And then I opened two laundromats. And I got in the bail bonding business. But, you know, probably my most notable, um, you know, business uh, start was in 1985. I started a company called York Waste Disposal. And in a 12-year period, we went from zero employees and two trucks uh, up to 165 trucks. So at what age are you uh, when when you start this first uh, waste business? I was 29 years old okay. in 1985 okay. when I started York Waste Disposal. Okay. So uh, growing up, you're, you you know, you tried school. Was Did you ever think you would go back to school? Or was that sort of like, you know what, I just want to uh, get out in the, the world of work? I just wanted to get out in the world of work. And, um, you know, my, my I probably could have gone to a four- or six-year college education, and it would have cost me probably one to two percent of what my real education has cost right. me over the years. I made a lot of mistakes, uh, and, and some of those mistakes have been very costly. Um, but I learn, and, and that's helped me, you know, get where I am today, you know, with you know my different businesses. But uh, no, I just I was I was so eager. I wanted to get out and work. And you know, Matt, as I travel around Pennsylvania, I, I see a lot of students that are in the same situation yeah. that I was in back when I was in high school. I mean, when you think that the Allentown School District has a dropout rate of, say, 30 to 35 percent, there's we should be seizing the opportunity to capture these kids before they drop out of school. And we can't wait until they're like in ninth or 10th grade and they drop out. Uh, we need to capture them when they're fourth and fifth, sixth grade, when their curiosity level is probably you know the highest or maybe even sooner. Um, so you, know, so, you don't, so need, to, you don't you, need to be a college yeah. graduate to be successful. Well, and you, you probably saw a lot of that, and, and I'm sure bristled at, at uh, just the big push that every kid needs to go on to college. And, and we still kind of have that, um, you know, that pressure that kids have to go on to a four-year school and that the trades are somehow a level below and that uh, we don't talk about that as a real career option. Uh, yet it is one that certainly you've, you know, in your businesses, you need people that are trained in technical skills. Um, and so, I mean, you've probably seen this from an from a, a angle or perspective that hasn't been very prevalent within politics, right? I mean, politicians always want to subsidize the, the big universities and, and our general, you know, public education systems. But technical education uh, has has really fallen, I think, by the wayside in terms of uh, the support that I think it really deserves. Well, I, it, listen, you can, I know people that, are, that have PhDs, and, and you could put those people in a room, and I, I know one or two, you could put them in a room that's 40 by 40 and have an exit door on each side of, the, of, the, of that building and have exit signs and set the room on fire and they'll burn inside because they can't find the exit door. <laughs> um, but I have probably one of my greatest success stories uh, is at my company, Penn Waste, today. I have a supervisor that has worked at my various companies for probably over 20 years. And this young man uh, started out as a loader and then he became a driver. And he's now a supervisor. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, education is great, and I think everybody needs a specific level of education. Listen, I think English and writing, writing skills, I think math, um, you know, being able to add two plus two, there, there are certain things that are, that are very important. I think also the history of our country um, is very important. There's, there's just a lot of basic things that I think a student needs. But I can tell you that work ethic and determination mm. and... You know, a lot of times over the years when I've interviewed people at my company for management positions or sales positions, I always ask, like, who was the greatest, Im- who, was a, who was a person who had the greatest impact on your life? You know, was it a high school coach? Was it a parent? Was it a, you know, scout leader? Who was it? And, you know, I'm interested in people who are competitive, people who don't give up when the tough gets going. Mm-hmm. They just are willing to, they're willing to persevere. And uh, so... You know, there are a lot of success stories in this country. I mean, America's a great place, but there are a lot of success stories of people who came from extreme poverty. 
um, you know, in, you know, whether it's inner city poverty, and it didn't, it doesn't matter what race well, you are, but Scott, they became successful. Let, let's just back up a little bit to when you started your business. I mean, did you come from a family of wealth to, that where you, you were able to, you know, tap mom and dad for the money to to invest in your first business? And then I want to I want to know what do you attribute the the keys to your success early on that then allowed you to build the businesses that uh, you operate today? Well, Matt, that's a great question. Um, no, my family, I, I, my family was not wealthy. Um, you know, I remember one time when I was probably 10 or 12 years old that we were sitting at the kitchen table and, you know, we got up every morning, uh, my brothers and sisters and I got up and I was the oldest. My sister was a year behind me, but we got up every morning. And I went to the barns, and I would water the horses before I left. My sister emptied the dishwasher. My mother made breakfast. But we had a, we had a complete cooked breakfast every single day of every day I lived in that house. And it was like eggs and bacon. It wasn't Pop-Tarts. It wasn't cereal. It was like, it was, it was the full-court breakfast. And then, you know, we'd go off to school, and, um, you know, we'd come home, and we would do chores. But one evening, we were eating dinner, and, you know, my father... Uh, we were eating meat. I don't know if we had a pot roast or something that evening, but we were, we all had something on our plate. And my father was sitting at the end of the table with a bowl, and he was he had saltine. He pulled out a pack of saltine crackers, and he was crunching them up and putting them in the bowl. And then he poured coffee over them. And I remember asking, "Well, Dad, what are you having there? That's oh, it's, I'm having cracker soup. I love cracker soup. Well, you know what." That was a bunch of crap. My, fa- the bottom line is, a lot of families. You know, my father took care of his family first. There wasn't enough. There wasn't enough money to, you know, to buy a, you know, a, 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 a larger pot roast or a lot, whatever we were eating. And you know, those one of the things. I mean, my my father sacrificed, and I hear these stories all the time. There were, there are hardworking people across this state, across this country. That grew up in households like that, but we had we we had we had love in our house, and 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 maybe not as much love as others had, but we. What did I learn? I, I had a work ethic, and I learned from my father. You know, you don't ever give up. I remember one time as a young young guy, I was probably 10, 12 years old. He sent me off to do something on the farm, and I came back and I said, I, I can't do it. And he said, No, you go back out and you try it. Don't say I can't. So, you know, probably, you know, there's, there's two things I learned on that farm, and that's work hard and don't stop. You know, I also have a, a very, um, very good and wealthy friend who has a saying, don't stop digging because you never know when you're three feet from the vein of gold, okay? <laughs> and, and, and you just, you, you, you learn that, so you persevere. And, and I've been through... You know, at a, in 1980, I came through the 1980 recession when interest rates went to 22%. I'd started buying rental properties, and the mortgages, I was getting local mortgages at a local bank, York Bank and Trust. They were 9% mortgages. Well, you know, in less than two years, they went to 19%. So one day I called the banker and I said, I have to come see you because I'm like choking on these payments because they've almost more than doubled. And I went down to see him and he said, Scott, you know, on that, that notice we send you, it says on demand. And he explained what on demand means. It's like, if you don't want to pay it, you know, we'll demand it. <laughs> so I lumped it out and I survived. And I've been through, you know, probably at least five recessions. But that was, for me personally, was the most severe. But also one thing you learn on the farm, you know, my father, again, you know, my father farmed and we farmed, you know, we didn't farm an active farm, but we bailed hay on neighboring farms. And, um, you know, we didn't, like I said, we didn't have, you know, crop, a crop type operation. But my father could not afford new farm equipment, so he would buy used farm equipment. Well, you know what happens with used farm equipment. It's always breaking down. You're buying somebody else's problems. So, so what I learned on that farm was how to problem solve. And so my two greatest skills are problem solving and, you know, working until it gets done. So you, you take the money from your first investment. Uh, you say, I, I want to do, did you say, Look, I see a need uh, for uh, waste hauling, and that that's how you ended up uh, getting into that line of business. Or was it what what happened? How'd you how'd well, you start? Be, how'd you become a trash man? Well, guy? when I came back from Williamsport Community College in 1974, the relative that, that I worked for in his construction company had purchased a little waste hauling company, five truck operation, local company, purchased it with a partner, and uh, I worked in the dispatch office that summer, and you know I ended up answering the waste phone. Mm. And the other dispatcher didn't want to answer it. So I ended up 
In probably two short years, I became the manager of the waste company. It wasn't a real large operation. And, um, you know, he sold the company two years ago because there was a very large competitor in town that he couldn't compete with, so he sold to them. And, uh, but, you know, that's really my, my, my taste of the waste business, and that was in 1976 when he sold. And then I just watched the waste business over the years, and I watched, um, you know, I watched, you know, acquisitions take place. The family business bought more and more businesses in town, and then in 1980, they sold to a public company. And in 1984, that public company was acquired by Waste Management. So in 1984, we had Waste Management, York, Pennsylvania, and I saw an opportunity. Okay. So and, we started up. And so uh, your first business, uh, you grew that. Uh, how many uh, people uh, were you employing, uh, trucks? And, and uh, so what, what was your top there? We stopped. We started with two trucks. And in the very beginning, I was the driver, the mechanic. I was the sales <laughs> rep, the office manager. And then we had, you know, a first employee we hired shortly after um, but I did everything. And then uh, when we sold the company in 1985, we had 165 collection vehicles. We had a terminal in Lancaster, a terminal in Mechanicsburg, and one in York, Pennsylvania. And uh, we had 350 employees. Mm. And we had, uh, we actually had, over that period of time, had built three recycling facilities. And, um, but it wouldn't, you know, it was a, it became a large business. And then I sold in 97, and, and then I had three or nine compete, and Things didn't go as planned with the sale of the business, so I started back up in 2000, and my current company is probably almost one and a half times. Well, it's almost double what we were revenue-wise. How many people employed at Penn Waste? uh, Today we have a little over 400, and we run about 150 collection vehicles, and we run out of one location. Uh, We don't run out of three locations because... You know, I just managing multiple locations in this business is a challenge. So we run out. We have a very large, um, state-of-the-art truck shop. So we run everything out of York, Pennsylvania, and we cover about a 40-mile radius from our from our terminal. You know, here in, in South Central Pennsylvania. Now I know through all of this, Scott, as you're running businesses, of course, you you had a, a wife and and you've got kids. Uh, tell us, tell me a bit about uh, you know your family, uh, the people that. Uh, we're surrounding you through all of these uh, challenges. Well, um, you know, again, I was married when and married when I started my first company, and married when I started my second company, and and uh, you know, about ten years ago, um, you know, I was divorced, and I'm now I'm remarried. But you know, I have two daughters, and uh, my wife, uh, current wife, has um, uh, a son and daughter. So between the two of us, we have we have four children. But what I will tell you that when I started my business in 2000. It was a really interesting time uh, when I started Penn Waste. You know, I started up right after 2000 was when the, you know, we came right out of Y2K. The world was in a major panic. Yeah. And if you recall that in November of 99, you know, we had the presidential election, the, the Chad recount in Florida. Um, and then, you know, I was starting this business and we were in a recession. And then, um, you know, I was parking trucks at a parking lot, um, you know, on the west side of town, and I was operating out of a, you know, small unit I owned in a strip shopping center to start Penn Waste in 2000. And on the day after Labor Day of 2001, uh, I started construction on a terminal for Penn Waste. And that was the Labor Day, the day, that was a Tuesday after Labor Day of 2001, and, and almost a week later, 9-11 happened. Right. And I remember coming up at the end of the day. I was sitting in my office in that little strip shopping center watching the Trade Center towers go down, the plane crashing in, and, and then the news throughout the day. And it was like, this is, this is real serious. Now, I just started a business. The business was really only a year and a half old. And so that afternoon around 6 o'clock, I came up here to the construction site where we were building our terminal. And I walked around. It was just one of those moments where I took 30 minutes and just walked around the site. It was 6 in the evening. And in September, this was September 11th in 2001, it was like, holy crap, have I made a, have I made a mistake by doing this? And what's the future of my business? And I could lose everything. Here I am at 2000 thinking I could lose everything. And um, so at the end of the day, it worked out. We worked hard. Um, and we were able to, you know, to continue to grow our business. But, um, you know, there's just some, you know, some scary times. And business people, we go through cycles of, you know, listen, business people 
get scared. We're not overly confident all the time. So, Scott, to, in all of this, where where was your interest in politics? Where was that developed? Were your parents uh, politically involved? Uh, did you have political discussions around the dinner table? Or how, how did uh, kind of your interest and then, you know, significant involvement in politics, where did that develop? And how uh, how did you come to your own, uh, you know, current positions on these issues? Well, Matt, that's a great question. My, my family was really, you know, non-political. But what happened when I started buying rental properties in the late 1970s, I was using a local attorney in town. His name was Jay Christian Ness, and he was a fabulous attorney. He and I became friends. And I went in to see him one time on a real estate settlement. This was like 1979. He said, Scott, I'm, I'm thinking about running for district attorney. Uh, you know, I was wondering if you'd, if you'd be willing to help me with my campaign. And, uh, and would you make a contribution? I said, well, Chris, I'll help you. And I didn't know. I was eager. <laughs> didn't know a lot. And I said, sure, I'd be lo- love to help you on your campaign. And I think I ended up writing him a check for $150, which was a big money back then. And um, so, um, y- you know, then, you know, so I got to a little taste of politics there, helping Chris with his campaign. He ended up becoming a two-term district attorney, probably one of the best district attorneys, you know, we've, we've seen in a long time. Uh, and... Um, or back in that period, and then, um, you know, when I joined, when I started my first waste company in 1985, um, we were asked within two years. Probably, I think it was 1987. A guy walked in our office from the National Solid Waste Management Association in 1987 and said, "I'm so and so, and you know, w- you know, would you consider joining our association?" So we ended up joining the National Association, and 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 shortly thereafter, you know, we had a Harrisburg chapter or Pennsylvania chapter, and we had, you know, monthly steering committee meetings in Harrisburg. So I started attending those meetings and then just started getting active, you know, politically. And, you know, I got to see regulation grow firsthand. Mm. I mean, when I started my first waste company in 1985, Matt, I could put the five regulations in a manila folder and close that folder. Today, if you go back to my office with me, I could I could show you a three and a half inch binder, and I've measured it, three and a half inch binder of about 100 regulations. So I've watched regulation just increase on my business, and it's affected other businesses, municipalities. I mean, what Harrisburg has has turned out has, and and the federal government is just, you know, it's it's breathtaking the the number of regulations. That- so, do you think that the regulations back then were sufficient, Scott, or uh, it, and do you think we need to just roll back all of those regulations? I mean, some some say, well, uh, you just want you know the corporatists to be able to do whatever they want and rape and pillage, of course, right? No, I think listen, the regulations back then. Um, wouldn't uh, you would not apply today and you know circumstances are different listen we need good regulation um, you know I, I consider myself an active environmentalist I'm not an environmental activist well listen if you came down to all my facilities I have lots of trees planted you know I have a full-time gardener at that, that works between all my facilities and and we plant flowers we have decorations you know we decorated for Christmas for Halloween and I'm, I'm proud of our facilities and I also grew up, I grew up, again, I grew up on a farm, small farm, and we, we bordered thousands of acres of land that was owned by the York Water Company. It was a watershed area. So, you know, we, we need regulations, but, you know, we have regulations that come from the federal government. We have regulations from the state government, and some, sometimes they are duplicating regulations. But what has happened in, in Harrisburg and in Washington, we have people that are getting elected to these different political offices or elected, you know, to the different offices in Harrisburg, um, you know, in House and Senate and government or governor. Uh, and then we have lots of bureaucrats. There's no common sense. Well, and you know, Scott, one of the things that, that many of my members uh, uh, talk about, uh, th- those that have operations not only in Pennsylvania but other states, is that there just seems to be a culture of gotcha in Pennsylvania where regulators, uh, they come to your facility, your operation, your plant and say, I know you're doing something wrong. I'm just going to find out what it is and then punish you for it. Whereas I hear from folks who are operating in Ohio or in West Virginia or Texas, they say that the regulators say, look, we want to help your business be successful, help you comply with the law, uh, not to you know, punish you. And it just seems that there, I don't know if that's been your experience, but a lot of my members express that there is just this culture of they are the enemy or they see themselves 
as the enemy rather than someone who's trying to help facilitate a better business climate. Well, Matt, that's a great point. I think that, you know, when I, back in the late 70s, early 80s, there were the world's greatest lies. And, you know, two of the greatest lies were the checks in the mail, okay? <laughs> and the, the next lie is, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. Well, you hit the nail on the head. When someone comes into my company, they are coming in to find us doing something wrong so they can find us. And you know what? I, I, I talk about the abuse from state agencies. And I'm running a business. And today, if the Department of Environmental Protection wanted to come to my business and look at some of our records, they will knock on our door. They don't come out Mondays and Fridays because it's too much work. They come out Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. They come out about 930 and they knock on your door and say, we're here to, you know, to look at these records or we want to, you know, look at this facility or we want to, whatever. Um, and it doesn't matter where we are. I, our senior management team could be all in a meeting. We could be meeting with our board. We could be meeting with bankers. I don't know. Something really super important. And we have to stop everything and we have to accommodate those inspectors that have come onto our property. And we cannot turn them away. And, you know, why... Or say, can you come back when it's a little more convenient for us well, running why business? couldn't... Yeah. Listen, I don't have a problem if they wanted to call me yesterday at 3 o'clock and say, listen, we'd like to come down and look at your stormwater records or this permit or whatever. You know, we, we, we'll be there at 9.30. But that's not the way it works. Mm. Because there is a mentality with these agencies in Harrisburg that we are going to... If they call us, if they called us yesterday, that we're going to have time to cover up what we're doing wrong. And you know what? I have 400, over 400 employees that, that work at our company, and to me, that's an outright insult mm -hmm. because the people that I have are highly, you know, highly trained. They're professionals. And don't you think that if I, you know, pulled a stunt like that, that somebody wouldn't like blow right. the whistle right. on me? Right. It's an insult. So you know, we are. If I treated my customers the way I've been treated by state agencies, labor and industry, PennDOT, DEP, I wouldn't have any customers. But, but this is sort of the narrative that we've heard in politics, right? I mean, we heard it a lot from Bernie Sanders at the, the national level. It's the demonization of, of those that are creating jobs. You know, what the 1%, of course, that they're all evil, uh, trying to uh, enslave workers and, and so forth. And so it seems that that mentality uh, has certainly percolated throughout a lot of these governmental agencies. Well, it's, it's, it's everywhere, and it's got to stop. Listen, number one, you know, today's Wednesday. Two days from now, on a Friday morning, at three various companies, there are going to be sick, over 600 paychecks issued. And my signature is going to be on the front of those paychecks. And I'm proud of the people that have worked hard for those paychecks. I'm proud of the fact that, you know, that I'm able to, you know, issue paychecks. We have great benefits. We have health insurance. We have great health insurance. And we have 401Ks, paid holidays, paid vacation, all the benefits. But you know what? I'm, I'm sick and tired of being abused by government. And that's why, you know, Matt, back in 2013 when a Senate seat opened up, and the Senate, the senator from the 28th Senate District announced that he was going to retire at the end of 2014, I looked around and, you know, there were two reasons. Number one, I was abused by the state agencies and I've had enough. And number two, I was abused by a lot of the career politicians. They were coming to my company every two years asking me for money. And I remember somebody came in in around 2012 or 13 and I think they walked out with a check for $10,000. But I had kept a file. This was someone in leadership in the house. And I had kept the file over a 10-year period saying, you know, when you guys were in to see me last time, you talked about workers' comp reform or you talked about this or that. Well, we can't get the votes. And, you know, it's all lip service. So, you know, after being abused by these guys and being used as, a, as an ATM machine, and you know what? Most of them would come. And they're going to tell you what you want to hear. So you give, them, you, know, you give them money and then they leave. They're liars. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's time to change it. So between it being an ATM machine and being bent over and abused by state agencies, I'd had enough. Well, and I know that uh, the, the first opportunity you had to run for office was a special election that seemed to be uh, rather rigged uh, for those that uh, had been in power, uh, that a House member was going to be elevated to uh, a Senate seat. Um, and I know that, that you really set a, uh, a historical um, uh, record 
uh, back in 2014 with your special election. Talk about that. How? I mean, because this is your you hadn't run for any political office until then, correct? Well, Matt, this is this is you know this is a subject that I you know I find intriguing, especially in the political and climate that we're in now. The bottom line is, in August of 2013, the senator in the 28th district said he wasn't going to run again. So I looked around in September of 13, I said, I'm going to run. So from September through December for four months, I came out of the gate hard. I did TV ads, radio, media, mailers. And, and I've learned since then, in late December, the Senate leadership did a poll, and they f- saw that I was almost 20 points ahead of a House member that they they had chosen. Okay. Uh, so the uh, Senate Republican leadership uh, had a candidate, and it was not you. Correct. Uh, so they do some polling. They figure out, oh, my goodness, we got to do something. Yeah, this guy's going to win, and I'm like 20 points. So And he'll was, be like the skunk at the garden party in correct, our caucus. Correct. Yeah, okay. So January 13th, it was Monday, January 13th. Uh, again, I've learned all this. This is, you know, after the fact. But there was a there was a deal cut with Senate leadership and Senate Majority Leader and the governor and the lieutenant governor and other members of the Senate that the senator would resign his position. So he resigned his position on January 13th, and then a, a couple hours later, you know, the um, the lieutenant governor came out and announced the special election date of March 18th of 2014. And so, you know, I. You know, it's interesting how timing works out, but that same day that the senator resigned, I had already uh, had a preset meeting with the York County Republican Party to talk about them supporting me. And um, so I met with them that evening, and uh, I walked in that room, and you could see the icicles hanging from the ceiling. And, you know, all of a sudden, a guy who had given them money over the years and helped them pay their rent and their electric bill, I wasn't good enough. And you know what? That incensed me because um, I was a guy, I was a job creator, and all the rooms that people were sitting in that room basically were just people, well, part of the political system. And, and you talked about uh, helping to support uh, many of these folks. I mean, do you know how much money you had given away to politicians at that point? Well, um, in, in this is 2013-14, and in 2010 I had moved into seven-figure donor land, which means that over... My cumulative period back when I first started, I, pro- I had given over a million dollars. So I moved over the million-dollar threshold in 2010. And what were you looking for that money, Scott? I mean, because folks say, oh, of course, if he's given money, he's looking for quid pro quos from government, from, you know, handouts. So what were you, what were you looking for? Well, I, I wasn't looking for anything special. I was looking for good government. I was looking to send good people to Harrisburg to do something. But the problem, there are a lot of people over the years that have come to see me and they become well-meaning. They're good people. Deep down, I think if you really sit down and you peel back the onion, they're good people to the down on the core. But what happens, they go to Harrisburg, this is a money game. You go to Harrisburg and you don't have any money and you get you get elected and then you want to get reelected. And you know, you don't have the ability to raise money because you've never been in business and maybe you were a county commissioner, a township supervisor. Or something like that. And so you end up becoming beholding uh, to leadership. And they, for the most part, own you. And leadership, if you if you do what leadership tells you, they will help they will help you get reelected. And if and if they, you don't, they will throw you under the bus. So you're going into 2014. You're feeling like, look, I've I've helped to get the Republican majorities. I've invested in a lot of these people. Those very people seem to be turning on you and your candidacy. Uh, so what happens next? Oh, it didn't seem they turned. They had turned. <laughs> you know, I can tell when I can tell when somebody's turned, and so they turned. And then you know, so January thirteenth, the senator retire resigns his position. Special election date is is set, and um, then on February twentieth. Uh, 30 days later, I came out and announced that we were running a write-in campaign. Because the, the party get, gets to pick their candidate for a special election, and they chose a, a state representative. They, they chose a House okay. member. Yeah, right. they chose a House member. So, you know, we strategized for 30 days, and we learned. I went down I, I went down to the, you know, it was on, it was the day after June 14th, or January 14th. I went down to the York County Courthouse to the, to the Elections Bureau, and I looked at the machines. I had them set machines up. I wanted to understand how a write-in campaign would work. You know, I, I photoed the keyboards and all that kind of stuff. You know, we studied it, and then on, on February 20th, I came out of the gate full bore, advertising all kinds of stuff, and then with, within a couple days, uh, the SRCC, the Senate Republican Campaign Committee, came out with nasty ads like, 
I remember waking up one morning at 6 a.m. and it's like the commercial came on and it showed one of, probably one of my worst side photos and the millionaire trash man is spewing more garbage. And it showed one of our garbage trucks uh, next to a lake and there were dead fish on the lake and environmental violations. And I can tell you that really incensed a lot of business people in, in, in our community because here was a Republican party attacking a Republican who had done a lot for the community employed people. And you know what? It surprised. Money started pouring in. I had been self-funding a lot up till then, but money started pouring in. And so on March March 18th of 2014, there were people that came out and in droves, and it was amazing. On that day, that's all this was. It was a special election. Mm-hmm. But on March 18th of 2014, 11,000 people came out and wrote in my name, and the Democrat and Republican on the ballot got 11,400. Now, total why, between the two of correct, them. So, correct. So yes. it was almost two to one. <laughs> but why I tell you this, people are, you know, they're really intrigued by what happened with the, you know, the presidential election last year. Listen, Donald Trump got elected in November of 2016. This was in this was this election was in March of 2014, mm-hmm. almost two and a half years earlier. The people of York County sent a message that they were tired of Harrisburg and they they also knew who I was. They had confidence in me. And so this was a team effort. We had o- over 90 of probably 110 precincts manned. And we had people, when we, I visited the various polls, I must have been around to 30 polls that day. And we were amazed by what the poll workers told us. They said that over 50% of the people that came to the polls had a card in the mail. It was the instruction card. We had sent 13 of these out. They had an instruction card about how to do a write-in. People came out and said, we've never done a write-in, but we're here to write in Scott's name. And it was like, it was unbelievable. So you, you've been in the Senate almost uh, four years uh, now, or I guess since your, March, your first election. The end election, of March yeah. will be four years that okay. I've completed, yes. And so uh, you've been there. Uh, what are the, some of the things that, that you found out that, um, you know what, I thought it was this way, but it's really not. Or what are the things, uh, is it worse than you even thought, Scott? I mean, tell me what, what has happened over these last four years. Now that you're on the other side, uh, you know, of electing people, you are the elected official and you kind of can't point at anybody else in, in a way, right? Well, Matt, that's a great point. You know, I knew Harrisburg was going to be bad. That's why I decided to run for the Senate. But when I got there, I can tell you it's 10 times worse. Um, you know, I tangled with uh, the Senate Majority Leader as soon as I got there uh, because I wanted to see paycheck protection. You know, uh, that's the ending of know, the collection yeah. of union campaign. Yeah. I wanted to see paycheck yeah. protection get to the floor for a vote. And he goes, "We don't do up or down votes." I mean, it's like herding <laughs> cats. Um, you know, and it's amazing how many people they they all of a sudden they lose their they lose their um, they lose their courage, and leadership has a huge influence in the House and Senate. Leadership has a huge influence over members, and and listen, I I believe in doing the right thing, and I'm not going to be pushed into a corner and threatened because you know I don't agree with someone. Listen, we're not going to agree. We can debate the issue, but the bottom line is that that when you think that every legislative session, which is two years. And, you know, this current legislative session started in 2017. So the 2017-18 year is a two-year legislative session. There are several thousand bills that are introduced in Harrisburg between the House and Senate. And listen, I didn't go to Harrisburg to introduce bills. Now, I've introduced um, um, several, not many, and a lot of people in the House and Senate go to Harrisburg, and they run on a, they think accomplishment is how many bills they've introduced. Well, what's the bill about? We have way too many regulations, and we have way too many bills in Harrisburg right now, but I'm very selective on what I sign on to as a co-sponsor. Um, you know, I did, I did attempt to get paycheck protection to the floor, and we ended up doing that. Yep. Um, you Senate know, in, has passed it multiple times. Yeah, since, we pulled yeah. it multiple times, but the Senate Majority Leader and I went, you know, we, we went, I mean, we, we, we went head, head, head to head over that, and uh, I was able to force it to, to a vote through a, a school code bill. But at the end of the day, um, I, I serve on many committees, and I, probably the most notable would be the Appropriations Committee, Transportation, Labor, and Industry. Uh, and I've, I've sat through three years of appropriations hearings, and I ask a lot of questions, and I don't get the answers. I'm a business guy. I want to know the answer. And 
And so I watched this budget process under Governor Wolf. Now, when I when I arrived in in April 2014, Governor Corbett's budget year was pretty well, you know, pretty well done. But I've watched this governor for three years and what he's done. And I watch, you know, I again, I sat through 60 hours of hearings in in 2015 and in 2016, close to 80 hours of hearings and in 17, another 60. And I watched this governor. You know, he hasn't signed a budget in three years. He doesn't ask any questions. In fact, he's not even at the table. And, Matt, I tell you this, and I see it firsthand, and I know it as a business owner, and I know what we pay in taxes, and I know what others pay in taxes, businesses and individuals. We do not have a revenue problem. We have a spending and mismanagement problem. In fact, the waste, fraud, and abuse is unbelievable. There are people, I believe, that should go to jail for past abuses. The think that we wasted a billion dollars on a statewide mm, radio system. Mm. We wasted over four. And nobody's held accountable for that. They don't I think, yeah, they yeah. simply don't yeah. care. And nobody's gonna nobody's gonna ruffle any feathers and I don't see anybody doing it. And you know what, I've I've had enough of it. And and listen, that's why I made a decision after watching this governor and what he did in the first budget, uh, you know, standoff, mm-hmm. we sent a budget to Governor Wolf back on June thirtieth of two thousand fifteen. For nine months, we had a standoff. But I can tell you, Matt, and, and, and people that are listening to this, we didn't get a notice on July 1st of 2015 saying we didn't have to send taxes to Harrisburg anymore while we were in a budget impasse. We continued to send tax money. And by the end of September, the general fund account had almost $9 billion built up, and the Fed funds account had almost um, $11 billion. That's a total of $20 billion. And this governor, he forced, he forced municipalities, counties, school districts, all kinds of entities. Human service agencies. To go out and yeah, borrow yep, money. Yep. And what he did was wrong. And, and in fact, we had a charter school in York that I learned uh, in September, October, was going to shut down because of funding. And, and listen, you know, a lot of people don't talk about it, but this is just what I saw. I visited this school, and I saw... I think about three to 400 students that were going to get dumped out on the streets. I'm talking they would have been dumped out on the streets. They would have gone back to the city of York where they, they, they came, to, this charter, they came yeah. to the charter school to get away from that. Because the city uh, schools are the second worst in the state. Correct. So, you know, these students I saw, I think it was 350 to 400. And these were, these were they would have been 7 through 12 uh-huh. students. And I visited the school. I did my homework. I looked at their financials. And, and, and I learned that teachers hadn't been paid for five to six weeks. And I'm like, wait a minute. Mm. There's funding. I'm paying my school taxes. I continue to pay all my taxes. This is wrong. So I made a decision I, uh, to help this school. And I went to local bank. I went to M&T Bank. And I explained the whole situation. And uh, they, they extended a million-dollar credit line. And I ended up, um, I co-signed that credit line, and I lent that school a million dollars over a four-month period so they could pay the teachers and do what they needed to do to keep the heat and the lights on. And, and I ultimately got paid back when the, when the budget passed, you know, and, and finally you know, went through in 2016 without the governor's signature. But those are the kind of things that shouldn't happen. Yeah, this was really uh, using kids as hostages in this. Uh, it, it was certainly an unfortunate situation. I know you don't toot your horn over these things, but I know that that school credits you with, look, you saved them uh, yeah. in order to stay in operation to keep serving those kids. Well, you know, there's a couple things. Our governor has, our current governor has, must have an incredible ego. Because he thought he knew better than everybody else, and he stuck it to Pennsylvania in mm. a big way over a nine-month period. And I can tell you it was tens of millions of dollars of additional interest expense because people had to go out and borrow. And thousands of kids lost scholarship Correct. money. Uh, there was a, Yeah. No, I think Correct. a lot of people were unfortunately harmed. Yeah, it was bad. And, and, and also, or he either has or he is really being foolish. And he has surrounded himself with people who just simply don't know. Yeah. And you know what? I hate to use this term, but, you know, I've encountered a lot of stupid people in Harrisburg. And I don't, I, that's a word that I just really, really dislike. But i tell you why I call them stupid, because I go to them with questions and they think I'm stupid. You know, they think when I ask a question that I'm, that I'm going to, that I'm okay with a half-baked answer or whatever. And if they think I'm stupid, then they're they're doubly stupid. And and I can tell you, this administration is is probably one of the worst that we've ever had. And this governor now, he hasn't, you know, he, he we have a scorecard on this governor. 
and we have three years of a report card of Governor Wolf, and and he hasn't done a lot for this state. And he's now running around. He was just in York. Well, he's recently. claimed he's restored uh, the education funding that uh, Tom Corbett cut. Uh, he's claimed that you know he's put uh, wine in grocery stores. He's done pension reform. I mean, how do you respond to all of his uh, you know claims of accomplishments that he's uh, done so listen, far? Listen, let, let's be crystal clear on this: that the government, you know, the funding that was allegedly cut by by Governor Corbett is an outright boldface lie that has been told by Tom Wolf repeatedly around the state. It was told by Wolf to the people of Pennsylvania when he was running. There was a billion dollars in federal stimulus money that came in that went away. That wasn't Governor Corbett. That was you know, President Obama that came in and dumped money in Pennsylvania. People were told not to hire school, school teachers. And you know, here we are, here we are, what, maybe eight, 10 years later, we have nothing to show for that $1 billion. It's gone. We don't have any bridges, bridges roads, bri- roads or bridges or computer. We don't have anything to show for it. It's gone. And so that is the biggest lie being told out there. And Governor Wolf is a bold-faced, outright lie. Well, how many budgets has he signed that's increased education spending? Well, the edu- uh, zero. <laughs> well, but education funding has increased. That's right. You know, under the, he hasn't signed a single budget. You know, it's funny. You know, I got into a cab down in Philadelphia. I was picked up by a cab driver um, back in September, October, uh, at the Philadelphia airport. He was taking me to downtown Philly for a meeting, and we were just talking. And I told him a little bit about you know what I was doing, and and I said, "What do you think of the current governor?" He goes, "I don't think." I don't, I don't think a lot of that governor, he says, a guy doesn't, hasn't passed a budget in three years. And I'm talking to the cab driver, and I, and, and I got to know the cab driver, you know, over the last six months, and he drives me all the time. And I said, Tony, i got to ask you a question. How do you know so much about what's going on in Harrisburg? He goes, I listen to NPR. Well, he's in the cab all the time. And I was asking him about what TV stations. He listens to CNN and, or watches CNN and stuff like that. But here's a cab driver who knows yeah. that the governor hasn't passed a budget or hasn't signed a budget in three years. But at the end of the day, you know, he lied to the people. And listen, the money that we have put into the schools in the last three years, it hasn't gone into the classrooms, Matt. It is it is going nothing to pensions and benefits and wages for the teachers. Now, Scott, you want to uh, face off against uh, Governor Wolf in November uh, of this year. But in order to do so, you need to get through uh, the, the primary that's coming up here in a couple of months. And there's a number of competitors uh, you have Speaker of the House Mike Terzai. You have Paul Mango, a McKinsey consultant, uh, f- former uh, Army uh, man, and uh, Laura Ellsworth, an attorney from Pittsburgh. Uh, what sets you apart from those three candidates that want to be the ones to take on Governor Wolf? Listen, I, I have a lot of respect for you know the accomplishments of my opponents, but let, let's 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 cut to the chase here. Uh, we don't need another an attorney in the governor's office. Attorneys. You talk to an attorney, there's no attorney that goes to law school and part of their law school education is taking business classes or education classes or how to read financial statements or negotiating or relationship classes. Mike Terzai is an attorney. Mike Terzai, been, he's been there for almost 17 years. He's part of the problem and he's, he's part of the system. Laura Ellsworth, well, I have a lot of respect for Laura. Again, she's a lawyer. We don't need a lawyer uh, you know, in the governor's office. We need a business person. We need a serial entrepreneur in the governor's office. Paul Mango is a consultant. And again, I have a lot of respect for Paul and his military background and his business accomplishments. But there's one thing that sets me apart from every single one of them. I've created jobs. Laura Ellsworth, her, her signature is not on the front of a paycheck. Mike Terzai is not on the front of the paycheck. And the consulting firm that, that uh, Paul Mango worked for, his name was not on the front of those paychecks. My name has been on probably a million or more paychecks over you know the last almost 35 to 40 years. I've started businesses from scratch. I've been through good times. I've been through bad times. You know, we hear about, they're all running around talking about creating jobs. Well, you know, there's a funny thing happening right now in Pennsylvania. We're in the midst of probably the worst ever skilled labor crisis. Mm. How do I know? Because I'm an employer. This year, my company had billboards all around the greater York area. We spent forty or 50000 on billboards. It says Penn Waste. We're hiring drivers and mechanics. We had a, a signing bonus. We are talking about creating jobs, but we have a skilled labor crisis. We have an education system that's turning out students that are not meeting the needs of today's you know, business and industry. 
in today's economic environment. And so we need to find people to fill these positions, fill these jobs. And we probably have over 200,000 skilled labor positions at a minimum in Pennsylvania. We need to find people before we, you know, we can, yeah, I always want to create more jobs. But, you know, you bring businesses in to Pennsylvania, where are you going to find these, where are you going to find the people if we can't find them now? See, that's the disconnect that the Mm -hmm. others bring Mm -hmm. to the table. So what's it going to take? What do you think is going to uh, take for you to win uh, the primary? Your your opponents have uh, hit you on a number of issues that they think, uh, you know, will uh, turn Republican voters on you. Uh, Things like what they've, uh, you know, called the bathroom bill or your voting uh, um, uh, history. How do you respond to some of those uh, critiques that are being thrown at you by your opponents? Well, Let's 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 talk about let's talk about those in order. The bathroom bill. Uh, Pennsylvania currently does not have an anti-discrimination uh, uh, law that that is involving housing and employment. And so today, you could hire someone, or excuse me, you could fire someone in your company if you find out that they have a lifestyle that you don't agree with. And you could have someone come. You could you could have rental units, and you could have someone come. Um, you know, you know, take a take a uh, a tour of you know your rental unit you want to rent, and they're accompanied by someone that um, you know is maybe the same sex, and you don't approve of that. So you can you can you have the ability not to rent to them, and you have the ability to fire that person. But when it gets to the you know I'm being painted as the third bathroom guy, and that I that I that I'm supporting you know boys and girls you know taking showers together in the elementary schools and high schools. That's total crap. And that's propaganda. I'm not a third bathroom guy, but I am. I am. I am focused on fairness for housing and employment. Okay. Now, one of my opponents came out and looked up my voting record in October of 2016, and I checked with leadership. I had signed up for an international business conference. I'm a member of a, an organization called Young Presidents Organization, and I've been a member since 1992. And I regularly attend 10 conferences in the region, around the country, and other states to learn. And, you know, for me to learn new things, best practices in other businesses has been hugely helpful. I don't live in a bubble. Harrisburg lives in a bubble. So I, I missed three days in session. And allegedly I missed, you know, 100 votes. And some are procedural votes, roll call votes, and actually probably half of the votes involved renaming bridges and roads. I mean, cut me a break. But, you know, what, the one opponent who's attacking me also didn't vote in a single primary election from 1988 until 2015. I mean, think about that. From 88 to 2015, almost 30 years, he didn't vote in a single primary election. But meanwhile, I went to a, uh, an international business conference, which I paid for myself. And by the way, I pay all my own expenses. I don't turn in per diems. But, you know, it was a conference for me to learn. And right now, there is a huge need to learn about what's going on in the future. In fact, I just, um, you know, I just sent away for a book yesterday. And the title of the book is WTF. Now, that could mean something else. And, but what the book, the title of the book is, What's the Future? and the future of technology, the future of productivity, machinery, all that kind of stuff. For me to survive in business, I have to, I have to be two miles out ahead of, of what's going on today. I have to be out looking. You know, I'm like the Indian scout who was out two miles ahead of the, the wagon train back in the 1700s. I have to know what's going on. I need to know. So that's that, you know, being away for three days, yeah, it was important to me, and the votes that I missed were really in, insignificant. So you, while you've been state senator, you have maintained your businesses. Would you do that as governor, or are there any requirements to divest yourself? What would your plan be should you win in November of 2018 as it relates to all of your business interests? Well, here's my plan. I'm going to continue to keep my businesses, and I'm going to continue to operate my businesses. Now, uh, there's no state requirement. Uh, this is not a federal, you know, again, we're not you know, governed yeah, by federal right. laws, but state laws. I have a five-member advisory board. I have a very, very strong uh, senior management team at, at my waste company. Uh, my uh, chief operating office officer and my CFO at Penn Waste oversee other companies that I have. And, you know, my CFO handles all my business financials. And in, in theory, I've been away for four years. And, you know, running, my businesses have run and my businesses have grown. And I have, you know, again, I learned a long time ago, surround yourself with the best people possible, you know, pay them well and, uh, you know, communicate well. 
And But at the end of the day, I have people who tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. So, you know, my plan is I'm 62. Uh, when I'm sworn in as governor, I'll be 63. And, you know, I could have ridden off into the sunset. And I'll, I'll leave the governor's office after I'll have to. I need eight years to get something done. I'll be 71. Well, you, you talked about uh, surrounding yourself with good people and something that you've done that's a, a bit different, uh, you know, uh, than traditionally done in Pennsylvania. Because we elect lieutenant governors and governors separately uh, in the primary, you've decided that you're going to choose your running mate in a sense uh, by uh, bringing Jeff Bartos, uh, who's from the, the eastern part of Pennsylvania, to be your running mate as lieutenant governor. Uh, why did you take that route? What was, uh, your, what was your thinking behind, hey, I'm going to name the person I want to be the lieutenant governor, and we're going to run around the state as a team? Well, you know, Matt, in the private sector, I pick my team. My team doesn't get picked for me. And I have, I have spent a tremendous amount of time over the years picking my senior managers, you know, hiring the best people. I just didn't, I didn't hire a, a, a headhunter or, a, or a, a talent agency to go out and hire people. I recruited all these people myself. And, and so I met Jeff Bartos back in March of, of, of last year, of 2017, and he had announced he was running for the U.S. Senate. I saw him at many events. Uh, we had the opportunity to, you know, you know, talk, and at some, you know, couple times, um, we and sat together. And he's a businessman himself. He's a business yeah. guy, and Jeff's a lawyer. You know, he he's going to law school. He 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 was uh, uh, this, the the um, um, general counsel for a large national home builder, and he was, I believe, president of one of their divisions. So I got to know Jeff, and as I watched the Senate race evolve, and then, you know, midsummer. You know, the more and more I got to know Jeff, I said, you know, it's really, at one point I said, it's really a shame you're running for the Senate because I think you'd be a great lieutenant governor because I'm looking for a partner in this mess uh, in Harrisburg. I mean, I can tell you something. I'm an optimist, and I believe that we can solve anything, but let me tell you something. The, the, the uh, The sheer magnitude of some of the issues and the sheer magnitude of of getting instituting change is going to require a very, very strong team. Well, partner in a mess, uh, that kind of seems to describe Governor Wolf's partner in the mess that uh, he seems to be in. So as you've picked a running mate, uh, Governor Wolf seems to be running away from who would appear to be his running mate, and that being Mike Stack, uh, the lieutenant governor. Well, that, that whole situation is unfortunate. I don't know the details, but what I do know that you know, there was a there were some you know uh, allegations of you know uh, abuse uh, abuse of employees uh, at the at the lieutenant governor's mansion. Well, so much that the governor took away uh, his uh, yeah. state trooper detail. Yeah. yeah. Well, the governor uh, the governor there was a report done. I think one agency or someone did an audit, and uh, there was a report, and the report has been you know is now secret, and they don't want to disclose it, and that's wrong. Number one. If Mike Stack and Governor Wolf are employees or elected officials paid by the, by the taxpayers, we have a right to see that report. And I think, unfortunately, the report's going to be, you know, Governor Wolf had knowledge of certain things and didn't do anything about it. And it was, uh, it was just actually uh, disclosed yesterday that the fire commissioner, who just recently resigned, um, it was knowledge of a, of a harassment issue back before he was selected. Uh, and the chief of staff of Governor Wolf at that time, you know, knew of that, you know, that allegation. Listen, at the end of the day, we have we have a right as citizens, and I have a right as an elected official. Listen, I'm a senator. I'm an elected senator. I have I should have access to that report. But we're as a senator, I'm being denied. And if I'm being denied, then the, you know, the the ordinary taxpayer on the streets being denied that privilege. That's wrong. But uh, I don't know what's going on between Governor Wolf and um, Lieutenant Governor Stack, but, you know, it's, 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 it's not good for this Commonwealth. And I think at the end of the day, uh, they have not served us well. Well, so as you look ahead for the coming months and uh, your first uh, victory that you need to attain is uh, the primary, uh, what's your plan? Uh, how are you going to go about doing this? Well, Matt, you know, what I've done is I believe in sowing seeds, and it isn't, I just didn't show up on the scene uh, you know the uh, three of three of the candidates that are out there. Uh, two of those three just popped up on the scene. They've never been inside. I've never seen them in Harrisburg, and I've been around Harrisburg since '87. As I earlier in the interview, I talked about how I joined our National Waste Association. We had a PA chapter. Uh, Speaker of the House has been there for 17 years. 
But after I won the write-in campaign in March of 2014, there were county uh, Republican parties all around the state that, that reached out to me and said, would you come and speak at our or presented our, our annual dinner and tell us how you won. And I did that. And then I chaired the Senate Republican Campaign Committee for two years in the 15-16 year. And then I announced my candidacy in January 17 for governor. So I've been on the road for four years. And what I believe what is going to um, uh, win the primary for me or is going to get me through is going to be honesty with people. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. I'm not going to sugarcoat things. Listen, I may, I'm not a polished guy. I don't have all kinds of degrees and pedigrees, and I don't have a Ph.D. and all that kind of stuff. I'm Scott Wagner. I'm a blue-collar guy from York, Pennsylvania. I grew up on a farm, and, um, you know, I, I'm in the waste business. I'm proud of what I've done and what I've accomplished, but you're going to get honesty from me. And I believe that there are a lot of people out there that want honesty, and they want somebody who's going to fight for them and get things done. And that's what this is all about. But it's going to be honesty um, with the people and the voters out there. And I think I'm going to, that honesty is going to bring people out of the woodwork to vote for me. Well, Scott, thanks for inviting me here to the Manchester Cafe to sit and chat, and uh, I wish you well. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.